Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the writer and cartoonist and artist Nora Krug, whose new book is Heimat, a German family album. Nora was born and grew up in Germany and now lives in the United States, and this is a book about her attempt to understand her German heritage and her family's past. Nora, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Heimat, the the title you've given to your book, has a kind of quite complicated valence in Germany. Can you talk a little about why why you called it what you did and how it encapsulates what you're after in the book? Well, Heimat describes the place that you feel most connected to emotionally, that you feel most rooted in. For many people, it's the place where they grew up, that they associate with a particular landscape or language or food. And in Germany, it has been a sort of conflicted term because, like many other things, the Nazis misappropriated it to convey the idea of a space that's basically very clearly defined and doesn't allow for a variety of perspectives. And so Germans, for decades after the war, shied away from using it and claiming it, basically. And I think Edgar Reitz, the wonderful filmmaker, was maybe the the only and first one who did in the 80s by calling his TV series Heimat. And in recent years, the term has become more popular again. I think some of the reasons are obvious. One is probably the you know globalization that people feel like they're losing grip of their own cultural identity and they're trying to seek it again and so the term has been printed on coffee mugs and t-shirt and has become quite commercialized but then it's also been claimed by the extreme right and so my publisher and I uh, initially I didn't want to call it Heimat because of this conflicted past our conflicted past and the way it's been used but then the publisher in my opinion finally was that we should call it Heimat in order to reclaim it from those who feel that they own it entirely and that there's only one way of looking at Heimat and what Heimat means and basically use it as a term that says everybody has the right to define it any way they want and in my case that would be looking at it you know with care and as something that can be loved while at the same time not stopping to look back at our troubled past and, you know, analysing what happened and trying to learn from the mistakes we made. And it's a book that does talk a lot and with great attention to words and vocabulary items and the way in which, you know, Germany's German vocabulary of speaking about the past has changed. And yet for this very wordy book, you've chosen to present it. I mean, it's not quite... I don't know whether you'd call it a graphic novel, you've called it a family album. It's a sort of mixture of cartooning and collage and handwritten work. Why why did you decide to approach it in that way? I wanted to break away from the more traditional graphic novel format, if there is such a thing, by which I mean panels and speech bubbles, because I was thinking a lot about the way that memory works and also in particular the memory of war and how the memory of war can be passed on through generations and how it shifts and changes over time. And memory is such a visual thing. I mean, not entirely visual, but it is visual and we associate it with sounds and smells. And But it's also very fragmented. And I think we tend to think of it or like to think of it as something that's easily definable and that's chronological in <clears throat> the same way that we 
try to define history in our history writing at least and in reality it's it's just an accumulation of individually experienced moments in time and it isn't so easy to define and so i i it was very important for me to give the book a, a collage character almost like a visual diary character to convey this complexity and fragmentary notion of the german war experience or the memory thereof yes and you also have sort of books within books i mean there's a kind of Every few pages you'll get an extract from a scrapbook of a memory archivist or the notebook of a homesick emigre. Do these books actually exist separately? Do you have a little scrapbook or a little notebook in which you paste, you know, you or German bread or, you know, German soap and, you know, the, other, the various things you found in flea markets no, there isn't. I mean, the flea market pages I refer to as an archive, and I probably have something like an archive at home of quite many objects and photographs and letters from the front line, letters written from prison of war camps that I've collected over the years and I'm continuing to collect because I feel like they're very important to preserve and they, they shouldn't be collected by people who will not, you know, make them accessible to the general public. I feel like all of these things should end up at an archive. So what I'm looking for specifically with those particular objects is a more visceral understanding of the war, because my own family didn't leave me with many of such things. And so I go to flea markets to look for these personal items. I'm not so interested in, in propaganda from that time, but uh, more in personal items that give you some more visceral sense of what it was like living through the Nazi regime. And I I arrange them on pages, as you mentioned, throughout the book, but also in a way where they relate to the narrative, to that moment in the narrative in which they're inserted. And the other type of pages you mentioned are basically encyclopedic pages that include fairly realistically rendered color pencil drawings of objects and places that I realized only while living abroad as a German for many years have a deeper meaning to me than I ever thought before I left Germany. They represent something essentially German to me, a sense of security and belonging, but also, again, the conflictedness, because some of them, again, were misappropriated by the Nazis. So to me, they my drawing them and writing them about them is an attempt of reclaiming them, though I, I'm not sure I successfully achieved that. Now, you talk, you know, as a sort of jumping off point for the book, in a way, is this idea of feeling, as you, when you say quite express, especially, guilt or shame in being German. Now, you were born, you know, a good deal after the war. Can you say why and how you would feel that guilt and how it expressed itself? I mean, I think there are many ways of feeling guilty or ashamed. And I think, you know, there's collective shame and individual shame or guilt. And what I grew up with specifically was a collective sense of shame. And that was because, you know, we learned so much about the war and the Holocaust in school. And that was really, really important. And I think we should never stop learning all the things that, you know, I learned in school. We visited concentration camp museums. I mean, I remember at least three that we that we went to. We analyzed Adolf Hitler's speeches word by word. So it was a very intense way of dealing with our past. And so as, you, as you describe it, there was a sort of erasure in the way you were taught as well. You know, they wouldn't talk about the, you know, Jewish soldiers who fought in the Wehrmacht. They wouldn't talk about the, you know, Germans who 
you know, were executed for, you know, trying to help the Jews. And, you know, there was a sort of very streamlined version of the history you were taught itself, wasn't it? Yes, and we also didn't learn anything about contemporary Jewish culture, which meant that the word we associated the word Jew entirely with, uh, exclusively with the Holocaust, and we only uttered it in a in a whisper, because we had no other reference points. And I think learning about your troubled past in that way is very unhealthy in the long run. It can actually have really bad consequences and I wish that we had been provided with more constructive tools of applying what we'd learned to the present and the future you know if the teachers have gi had given us more instead of conveying you know hierarchically basically information that you know passing it just down to us had tasked us with going out there and you know talking to our own family interviewing our own family or other people, you know, that re represent minorities in contemporary society, for instance, I think we would have felt more confident about contributing to society in a positive way. And what happened uh, uh, instead was that we were left with this feeling of paralysis and also cultural disorientation. We felt no pride in any of our cultural achievements that ha had happened before the Nazis. We didn't learn old folk songs or the you lyrics. So you, loved, you read Schiller, but you loved Shakespeare. Yes. Know. I mean, I can't say that was true for every German, but I particularly you know, remember that. Yeah, we didn't use words such as pride or hero or victory. We didn't learn the lyrics to our national anthem. So... I think, yeah, it's 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 an unhealthy thing to do, I think. And I think still today, a lot of Germans don't know how to both love their their country, their Heimat, and, you know, basically tend to that love. I, I don't really know how to phrase it in English, but, you know, cultivate that love. I mean, cultivate is maybe not the right word. And at the same time, keep on looking back critically. You know, it seems like it's a it's a conflict. And having lived in America for 17 years, I see that the opposite there is the problem that, you know, there is a, such a myth that's created about how America was founded in quotation marks. And yet there is a fear of dealing in depth with the history of slavery or, you know, Native Americans. And for many countries, that seems to be a, co a conflict, you know, dissecting the problematic history while still cherishing one's cultural heritage. One of the peculiar things, and it's, it enters into the book, since we certainly in the UK, the sort of post-war attitude to German guilt was to f funnel it into a sort of comic mode. I mean, we have, you know, sketch show characters who are the German who German tourists who can't resist apologising for everything, or the, you know, Forty Towers, don't mention the war. And, you know, in your own book, you describe how when you went abroad as a teenager... You know, if somebody clocked that you were German, they would say, you know, Heil Hitler, or, and they'd fall about laughing. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's become something that's comic outside Germany that's so solemn inside it? You know, I'm not a sociologist, and so it's hard for me to to say. And I've, it's something that I've particularly observed in, in England, and there's pro probably something to be said more broadly about why humour is used to reflect on topics that are maybe difficult to discuss, but I'm neither British nor, you know, a sociologist, so I don't think I have a clear answer. But I was interviewed by a journalist recently whose suspicion was that in England, people actually feel uncomfortable bringing up the subject in front of a German as well, and that it's the 
you know, this feeling of discomfort that drives them to apply humor. And, you know, in, in Germany for, for a long, long time, humor just didn't seem, obviously, the right tool to use, you know. When no, well, there when was, I mean, there was Look Who's Back, you know, I yeah. don't know the German And that was, a, that, you know, that's a fairly, fairly recent development, which also means that we've probably arrived at a different point in Germany, you know, a different point of reflecting on our past. But I think I've missed that point because I've been living abroad for almost 20 years in, in total. So I still feel a little bit ambivalent about, I think, in general, humorous depictions of serious political subjects, because I, I mean, depending on how it's done, I think it can sometimes simplify the problem too much. But I think it probably really depends on the particular program. So. Yeah. How did living abroad? I mean, I don't. You know, you don't go into great detail in the book about how you went to America, but how did that inflect your sense of Germanness? Well, when you live abroad as as anybody from any culture, you are usually confronted much more deeply with your own cultural heritage because you're a stranger, and so I I realized how German I was only when I moved abroad. And I was also often confronted with negative stereotypes, as you just uh, mentioned earlier, about German culture. And at the same time, also about, you know, with sincere interest in what my own family had done. And I never had any answer to that question. So it was only because I lived abroad for so long that I felt this, this growing urge to go back to my family and dig deeper and... Because at first you, you describe how you started to, you know, you sort of buy very stereotypically sort of German trinkets to put around the house and things that you wouldn't have if you'd been living at home. And you connected with a sort of set of German communities in the States. But you describe how you said you thought those people, their sense of their own Germanness was much stronger than you felt. You know, that they... I mean, it made me think slightly of the, you know, Boston Irish people who are far more, far more Irish than anyone who lives in Ireland. I mean, did you think that was a sort of overcompensation on their part? Do you think they had the same insecurity you did? I think so. I mean, it depended dependent on where I went. I visited a, a German-Austrian-Jewish group of emigres in, who live on the Upper West Side, and they meet every week. They've been meeting since 1943 to basically conserve or celebrate a sense of, you know, German-speaking culture. And they obviously didn't have any clear answer when I asked them, you know, what is German identity? And I felt very connected to them. But then I went to Milwaukee because I wanted to experience communities, uh, some of which had uh, emigrated before the war. I wanted to know how, you know, that the sense of German identity is conveyed in communities that didn't live through the war or the post-war years. And I visited a German dance fest there and, you know, they made Bratwurst and they all had blonde braided hair and, you know, they were wearing lederhosen. And, but, you know, they were so, they exhibited a kind of pride that I felt very uncomfortable with. And I also sensed a very strong feeling of defensiveness regarding the war because maybe because they hadn't lived through it, they felt an even, even stronger. And they, you know, living in America during the Second World War and during the First World War as a German, I think, you know, they were confronted with, I'm sure, with a, a, a lot of negative sentiments as well. So I think they have developed their own 
mechanism of defensiveness around the subject. Yeah. Now, the book is also, as you say, it's a sort of kind of detective story or a work of journalism or archival research. I mean, you you wanted to find out what your parents hadn't told you or hadn't known about your own family's history. And can you talk a bit about, I mean, there are sort of two pivotal characters, I suppose. One of them is your uncle and the other one is your maternal grandfather. How do you sort of head towards them? I think they were the ones about whom we had heard most stories. I mean, there, there wasn't much said about anybody else. I mean, I did research other people in my family, but there was not as much to find. But there were also stories that I had heard about in my childhood and youth about my maternal grandfather and paternal uncle that had made me curious about them even when I was a child. I mean, for instance, my paternal uncle uh, kept an illustrated school exercise book, you know, like all the other children at the time. And my father had brought it with him when he left his the village where he and my uncle were from. And this exercise book was entirely decorated with, you know, both with flowers and beautiful landscape scenes, but also with swastikas and flags and horrible anti-Semitic depictions. And so I discovered these exercise... You should make clear, actually, that these exercise books, your, your father did not live at the same time as your... Yes. So my, my uncle was 20 years older than my father, and he died as an SS soldier at age 19 in Italy. And my father was born in 1946, so the year after the war ended. And he never met my, my uncle, but he, he was named after him. They were given the same name because my grandparents owned a farm, and my father was expected to take over the farm because his brother had died in the war and wasn't able to take it over. They were very different. My uncle had always been described as a soft-hearted, sweet, well-behaved boy, and my father as stubborn and ill-tempered. And so my father, all throughout his life, lived under the shadow of the dead brother. And there was um, basically a myth, I think, that a part of my family had created about him as this perfect boy who was drafted into the SS and died at 18. And so it was his exercise books that we had in an old shoe box in the living room cabinet. And I saw them as a child, and of course they deeply interested and both also at the same time disturbed me because of the uh, Nazi, you know, illustrations that he drew in them. And I think that really was one of the triggers for why I then, years later, decided to focus particularly on him. Yes, there's a bit in the book where you describe, I think it's a family holiday in Italy, where you visit a, a German war grave and war cemetery, and your father goes looking, he says, I'm looking for my brother. And he finds him, you know, his name written down, but which is, of course, his own name. And you depict, I think, twice your father's face as he's doing this, and he looks really angry. Why have you drawn him like that? It's funny, my father, I think, always looks angry. I think it's partly due to his bushy eyebrows, but I don't think I intended to make him look angry. No. I think he just looked very, you know... Emotional. And he was concentrating, he was focusing. He, I think it was meant to look more serious than angry. Yeah, and I have to add that we only... We came upon the grave by coincidence. We actually discovered this cemetery which was huge 
by chance while driving around on the countryside. My brother at the time took pictures of graveyards on the Italian countryside. So whenever we saw one, we stopped and he got out and took pictures. And then we came by this huge military graveyard and entered it and realized it was a, you know, German World War II graveyard. And and then my father suddenly disappeared and we didn't know where he was. And then it had turned out that he had gone up to the chapel and looked at the the register of the names and he had only known that his brother had died in Italy but not where uh, exactly it happened and so he was looking for his own name and found his uncle's name in the book and then we walked to where the gravestone was located and stood in front of the stone that said my 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 father's name on it and obviously that was also a very deeply emotional moment for the whole family and my father who tends to express things in a very I don't know casual way but they really go very deep with him I think the only thing he said was this is the closest I've, I've ever been to my brother which was true both from a physical and from a you know emotional point of view and so that and finding his exercise books in our living room cabinet were probably the two things that you know, made me decide to focus partly on him in the book. Yeah. And the other character is your maternal grandfather, Willie, or Willie, I'm not sure how you pronounce him. Willie, yeah. um, there's a lot of anxiety, clearly, for you and your father. You're investigating his war record because you knew he was in the, you know, he was, he was a serving soldier, wasn't he? Or at least you discovered that. Can you talk a bit about how you, you know, travelled towards learning about him? So my mother read an article in the local newspaper that you can ask for a particular type of file called Spruchkammerakte in German. And those files were compiled, at least in the American sector, by the American U.S. military. And they contained a questionnaire that had about 400 or more questions on it that every German had to fill out after the war. It's part of the denazification yes. thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, at least in, in West Germany. And so he... I found, I went to the archive and I found his actual, the exact piece of paper that he had held in his hands and filled out. And so the questionnaire contained questions like, did you ever buy real estate from a Jewish person? When, for how much? Is there anybody who can prove it? And and the first question on the questionnaire was, were you a member of the Nazi party? And he wrote yes. And I was really shocked when I discovered that because... He had always told my mother and aunt that he had voted for the uh, Social Democrats, which was the basically the Democratic Party and also the Nazis' biggest enemy, political enemy. And also only 15% of all Germans were members of the Nazi Party, and I'm saying only in quotation marks because it's not like no more of them wanted to join, but... It was because the Nazis put a stop on admissions. Quite yes, was that what it was, 33? I think it was they, as yeah. early as 33. And because they realized that most people joined for opportunistic reasons. So I, of course, asked myself, why did he join in 1933? And, you know, why, why was he also admitted after they had put this stop on admissions? And so the file revealed page by page the whole narrative behind that reason because he... It basically contained letters that he wrote to the U.S. military explaining, you know, trying to make a case for himself because once you filled out the questionnaire, you were ranked into five different categories. The worst was major war criminal, then it was major offender, minor offender, follower, 
and victim under the regime, innocent, basically. And so based on what you filled out in the questionnaire, you were ranked according to those categories, and he was trying to make a case for himself by explaining the reasoning for why he joined. No, but there's... Did you, as you were kind of investigating this, I'm curious, I mean, obviously, a lot of what you're doing is excavating things that people haven't wanted to talk about. How much were your parents, as it were, up for this stuff being looked into? I mean, for your mother, for instance, did she really want to know what her father had done? Yes, I mean, I I was very lucky. I mean, I'm very close to my family, and uh, both my parents and my aunts, both aunts really, were really open to talking about our family and learning new things about them. They grew up at a time where they didn't have the same tools, technological tools available to do the kind of research I did, but also a lot of the files that I found weren't accessible at the time to the public, so they actually couldn't have looked into them. And they also grew up at a time, I mean, it always depended on what family you came from, what state you grew up in, who your teacher was, how old your teacher was in the 50s and 60s. But they really grew up feeling like it was important to stand up for, you know, to to take responsibility for what we had done. So they really wanted to know. And what was more interesting to me was how they then what they then did with that information. So when I told my mother about my grandfather's membership in the Nazi party, she was shocked as much as I was, but she also said that she always thought that he was a bit of a coward. So there was no way in which she was trying to defend him. And when I told my aunt, she also was shocked, but she, you know, also told me that, you know, I have to understand it from his point of view he had a family you know it was difficult times and what would you do if you were in a situation like that and what I find interesting is that she had a much more difficult relationship with him when he was alive so I just found it interesting that she in retrospect tried to protect him more than my mother did maybe to make up for the relationship the difficult relationship they had had before. I mean, it was really interesting to me to see how the personal and the political always, you know, how deeply they're intertwined and how complicated Well, all the way through the book, you're sort of saying, you know, you want to to find something out that's, you know, going to make you feel more humanly warm towards them, or you you sort of don't want them to be humanised if the information's wrong. I mean, do you feel by the end of it, you're you're more able to see them in the round. Uh, Yes, I do, but I also don't think you can really fully ever measure guilt or innocence. And especially in in a category like the one that my family basically fell under, which was that of the followers. And that's exactly why I was so interested in researching that. I mean, if you're, you know... If you have a a war criminal or a high-ranking SS officer or something like that in your family, it's pretty obvious that they're guilty. If you have somebody who was a resistance fighter and was executed, it's, you know, probably quite... I mean, independent on the person again, but you can probably see, you know, a certain degree of innocence there. But with the followers, it's just so much harder to measure. And I think a lot of Germans fell into that category, and a a lot of Germans of my generation therefore feel like, um, well, what's there to say? What's there to research? Everybody 
was a follower. And that's, I think, a mistake. I think that's exactly when you have to look more carefully at the decisions they made, because there were many ways in which you could have helped in small ways that would not have risked your own life. And yet a lot of Germans decided not to do that. And so I think you have to always read between the lines, look really carefully. And I mean, that's that's the thing that I'm always interested in, this gray zone of war, because I feel like it's not really written about or depicted in, in popular movies accurately enough. You know, we don't really hear so much about those stories that are not spectacular enough to be told. You know, those people who who weren't great war heroes or big, you know, war criminals. And yet so many of us were in this other category, and I think we need to examine that more closely. Can I ask finally whether there are sort of writers or books that you feel have been a sort of influence on you or with which your book is in dialogue. I mean, I suppose an obvious one to think of is Mouse. You know, Archbeagleman is a sort of graphic description of, you know, from the other side, you know, having a, a father, well, he's another, you know, New York-based cartoonist. Did you, I mean, is that something that was in the back of your mind as you were working? Yes, I mean, Mouse definitely, though I actually thought about whether there were any books that I could say deeply influenced me and... While thinking about it, I realized that I think I've been more influenced in recent years by both non-fiction writing on, on any subject, really, and uh, documentary films. And documentary films, I mean, essayistic documentary films, and documentary films partly because they have a visual component and they, you know, they think about how to weigh images and language and music, obviously, which I didn't have available, but the same way that I had to. So I thought a lot about how do I combine images with text without creating a sense of sentimentality, because obviously that's fatal if you, you know, create a World War II story from a German point of view and it comes across as sentimental. That's the worst thing you could do. So whenever I wrote about uh, something relating to my own family's loss, I had to be really careful with what image I could pair it with. And so when I was watching documentaries in recent years, I looked for that in particular and also for how the story was told verbally and um, I'm a big fan of those non-fiction writers as well who describe emotion without being overly specific and you know who create sort of a, an an inner portrait rather than spelling out exactly what I mean obviously that's probably every good writer does that so Try. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I think that were probably my strongest influences. I mean, people like Joshua Oppenheim, I, I really admire his work as a documentary filmmaker. Also Werner Herzog, I watched a lot of his movies again in recent years. And one of the nonfiction writers I admire a lot is Alexandra Fuller. So those were some of the influences. Nora Kruger, thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.